On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we have heard pretty much everything I think there is to possibly hear about the coronavirus over the past number of days. The shutdowns, the government actions, the stock market, the this, the that, the the other. The thing we haven't heard yet, what does it feel like? What's it like when you get coronavirus? Well, tonight we are going to be talking to someone who has had it, just got home from being on a cruise ship with her husband who also had it. What does having the coronavirus do to you? Now, there are people who have died, so her story is not necessarily reflective of everybody, but I think you may be a little surprised considering what we've been hearing about this horrible thing. You may be a little surprised to hear her story. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the effect on the sports world, the business side, because everything is shut down. There's lots to talk about today. Enjoy. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Over the past, I don't know, three, four, five days, longer than that, back into last week, we have heard Almost everything, I think, or just about everything possible you can imagine about the coronavirus, how you get it, where it came from, we've seen what it looks like, uh, how it spreads the numbers on and on, government responses, things that are canceled because of it, on and on, everything. The one thing that has been missing from this discussion so far, in large part, for good reason, because mostly because it's been very difficult to find someone to talk about it because of quarantine and everything else, is someone who's had it, someone who has lived this experience to tell us what this is all about. Now, I understand there are different places on the spectrum. We've had people who have died from this. We've had other people who have certainly not. But we wanted to get someone on the air today who can talk about this, who can give us a first-person perspective of what coronavirus is. What is it like if you get it? If you're the average person who gets it, how do you, what does it feel? How bad is it? My next guest is that person. She's just had it. She's now home in Port Dover after she had tested positive while on the Diamond Princess cruise ship with her husband. Her name is Rose Yurex, and she joins us now. Rose, thanks for doing this today. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're quite welcome, Scott. And uh, glad you're home safe, by the way. I'm sure you are, too. I don't think you can be any gladder than we are. (laughs) I'm sure. (laughs) Had Had you ever heard of coronavirus before you set foot on the ship? No. Um, other than it might have related a long time ago to the uh, the SARS incident in okay. uh, 2003, I believe. And, I, you know, funny, we talked about it on the show last night. I had spoken with my wife a couple of days ago saying, what do you remember about the SARS thing in 2003? And honestly, neither of us, we knew the name and we knew it was bad, but there wasn't a whole lot that we remembered. I'm guessing probably that would be the same with you. You knew of it, but... Absolutely. That's kind of it. Did we really remember very much about it. So while you're on the ship, uh, at some point, I'm guessing, you, you started feeling poorly? Nope. Both Greg and I have felt fine this whole time. So we are what they refer to as people who had tested positive, but were asymptomatic. We felt perfectly fine. So no symptoms, no sore throat, no sore muscles, no headache, no fever, no nothing? Nothing. Okay. But, but now there were other people who also tested positive. I'm sure you talked to some of them. Did they have symptoms? Um, the ones, it was really hard to communicate, you know, uh, because we were so isolated. Um, so the other traveling companion we were with, uh, she tested negative and obviously didn't feel anything. Uh, there were other people that we talked to when we were in the clinic in Japan who had tested positive, but again, were asymptomatic. So explain the test then. Everyone, I assume, on the cruise ship was tested. Yes. 
Um, and that particular test was a, was a, a throat swab. Okay, which me, and I mean, maybe it seems too obvious a question, but how do they do that? Just put a piece of swab down your throat? Basically, it's, it's towards the back of your mouth. And when you had no symptoms and then some hours later or a day or whatever it is, how, how long did it take for you to find out? Oh, it took, the test was done on the 15th and we found out on the 18th. Oh, so it took a, a few days. And when oh, they yeah. said that you were positive, what was your reaction? Well, the initial report was that Greg was positive and I was negative. Okay. And it wasn't until the following day that they said, oh, no, no, that was a mistake. I was actually positive as well. Well, this is going on. Uh, even though you didn't know what coronavirus was going on to the ship, I have to believe when everybody's being swabbed and everybody's being tested that you're looking something up and fi- doing some research and finding out what this is. About the only thing we could do was it was to go on the internet and watch what was happening on social media and, and do a bit of research, but there wasn't very much known about it even at that time. So was there, when they say you're positive, because most of the reports, and this is partly, this is a big reason I wanted to have you on, most of the reports kind of um, portray this, that if you get it, it's like Ebola or the bubonic plague, that you are destined for death. And I mean, I know that that's changing a little bit, but those were the early reports, especially out of China, that this was horrible. Mm -hmm. When you heard you were positive, is there an element of fear that's involved of what's going to happen here? Oh, absolutely. You have really no idea what's going to happen. Um, So yeah, there's a great amount of fear there. And they couldn't tell you much about it? Nope. (laughs) So so what do you do? Just you and Greg just sit there and stew and worry about what's coming next? Yep. That's pretty much accurately uh, an accurate description of it. And was there, does it become a psychological thing that every time you have a tickle in your throat or you feel a sore muscle, you go, oh, it's coming, it's coming. Yeah, very much so. You start to, your mind starts to play tricks on you. Yeah, it does. And you got to remember as well where we were. And there was a huge language issue because most mm. of I mean, the Japanese health officials didn't speak English and we didn't speak Japanese. I, I would, it, it's indelicate, so I apologize doing this, um, but there's a reason for it. I would normally not ask someone their age and if you don't want to tell me, that's totally understandable <laughs> and I get it. Um, but this has been a, a virus that we have been told is particularly the, every decade you go up, it seems that the numbers of, of symptoms and the violence of it or whatever you want to call it gets higher and higher. Um, it doesn't sound though, I mean, you're not 30, a little older. Well, so I say older than 30. We are both in our late 60s. Okay. So you would be. Thank you for being honest. <laughs> I just, I was trying to be nice and dance and be polite. Okay, I'm not ashamed of it. Um, but you would seem to be right in the wheelhouse for when people would start to be concerned about this. Cause and, the, yeah, and not only because of my age, but because I do have asthma and I've had pneumonia a number of times. And again, that comes back to my point of when you start reading about this and you see that you hit many of the target areas, the fear would be even greater. The, the fear is definitely there. So you, you basically self-monitor, and like you said, if you, you, know, you feel fine, that's great, but every you know, cough, every sneeze, and you start to worry, you know, is this you know, the possible time it's setting in? You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are chatting with Rose Urex, who is from Port Dover, just back from the Diamond Princess cruise ship, which some of you are familiar with because you heard about it in the news because it was the ship that was docked off of Japan after hundreds of people tested positive for coronavirus, including Rose and her husband, Greg. And as I say, back now safely in Port Dover. 
Um, Rose, when you found out that you were positive and they put you into quarantine and do this, what treatment do they give you? There is no treatment for this virus. There is nothing they can do. They can only treat the symptoms. So in quarantine, they just feed you and give you some things to read that's, or something and you just sit there? That's basically it. You're in quarantine and they give you time for uh, your body to try and fight it off and get rid of it. And occasionally they would come along and swab you to check to see how you're doing. And there's an, remember what I said on the boat, they did throat swabs? Yes. In the clinic, they do nasal swabs. Oh, those are horrible. They are. <laughs> I, I'll, let you, I'll let you describe what happens in a nasal swab. Well, it's like you take a Q-tip and shove it up your nose, <laughs> twirl it around, and it, it goes right up almost into your sinus cavity. So, yeah, very, very uncomfortable. My daughter is a nurse, and she's been telling me that they've had to do this to people, and I flinch every time I hear about it. Uh, you want to make sure that you get swabbed so you know if you're healthy, but not that way. Yeah, and personally, but personally, I think that that nasal swab is, has a more accurate reading than a, a throat swab. Uh, yeah, but this is, I mean, if listen, even though you may not have symptoms, that's a reason enough not to get coronavirus, <laughs> not to have to go through the swab, I would think. <laughs> Well, you'll do your best to try and avoid getting it, but sometimes it's just it's out of your control. Do you have children, you and Greg? We do, but our two boys are like 30 and 32. No, fair enough, but I'm wondering because they would be aware that you were on the ship, and when they hear that this is going on, and again with the, with the uh, unbridled fear going on about this word coronavirus, what was their reaction? Their reaction was, inc- well, it was fear and concern as well, but they've been very, very supportive of us. I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure. But this is, when, especially when you don't know what something is, even when you say, oh, you know what, mom and dad are fine. Look, I've had my mom and dad say, oh, we're fine. And I find out later they weren't really all that fine. They just didn't want to bother us. Um, so I'm just wondering if they were sitting there at home thinking, what's really going on with mom and dad? Well, then that's the nice part about the internet. You know, we were actually able to do Skype chats with mm. them all. So we could see each other and talk with each other. So they knew exactly what was going on with us. What happens now? When Now, you've been cleared because you had uh, tests done to show you were both now negative. Right. Do they tell you they have to do any other follow-ups or anything, or are you completely free and clear now? The only requirement that uh, we had from the um, Public Health Advisory Council of Canada was that we report, when we landed in Canada, was to report to our public health office and to self-monitor for symptoms for 14 days. Which, have you been self-quarantining yourself since you got home? We did this voluntarily, yes. We self-quarantined ourselves. So you've now essentially been quarantined, because you were there for 14 days, right, we in quarantine? We were on the ship for almost 14 days. We were in the clinic for almost 14 days. <laughs> and now we're doing an additional 14 days here. Yes. So you're just happy to talk to somebody besides each other. <laughs> you're just happy we called. <laughs> um, I, I mean, look, after that much time, you just want to get out of quarantine, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. But that, being, being here is much nicer. I am sure. Because a lot more room to walk around in. That said, I should ask you this. When I called this morning and asked if you would come on, one of the things you said was that your husband, that Greg, he was kind of, he was done with all this. It was, it, it, has it been a stressful thing to go through this? It's been extremely stressful, both emotionally and mentally. Do they tell you that, uh, and uh, we only got a second or a minute or so left here. Do they tell you now, normally when you get an illness of some kind, your body creates its own inoculation in a sense against that. If you get chicken pox, ideally mm-hmm. you're not supposed to get it again. Have they, do you know, are you now inoculated against ever getting I, this again? I think the jury is out on that 
because there have been cases of people who've had it, have now proved negative, and then have got it again. Well, are you going to go back on a cruise again? Oh, absolutely. See? Love it. <laughs> there you go. You we got... won't do it right away, though. Not right away, and uh, you'll tell them to stick with the throat swabs, not the nasal swabs <laughs> in future. Well, if push comes to shove and they have to do it, I'll put up with the nasal swabs. Rose Yerex, really appreciate you coming on today. Thank you so much for your time, and oh, glad, you are, uh, glad you are much, much better. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. That is Rose Yerex, as I say, just off the diamond, well, not just off. I mean, you heard what she said. Two weeks in quarantine on the ship, two weeks in quarantine in Japan, two weeks of self-quarantine here in Canada. But here's the thing. And Rose brought it up that most of the people that she talked to, that Greg, her husband, talked to, asymptomatic. 80% of the cruisers who tested positive, the people on that cruise ship, and there were something like 700 people who tested positive for coronavirus. 80% of those who tested positive were asymptomatic. No symptoms whatsoever. And the reason I bring this up is not to make light, I'm not making light of coronavirus. People have died from this. That's, that's, that's reality. But when we hear numbers like 150 million Americans could get coronavirus, that doesn't mean, or 20 million Canadians could get coronavirus. What did they say? Up to 70% of Canadians could get this. It doesn't mean that 20 million Canadians are going to be on respirators in ICU wards of hospitals. It's an, this, is, this is something to take seriously for sure, but it's also not the bubonic plague. Rose was positive. Rose has had coronavirus and had not one symptom. She kept waiting for the symptoms, not one symptom. That, 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 I, I mean, that's part of the reason I wanted to have her on. If we can find someone who's willing to come on, who's had a horrible case of this, I will happily bring them on to hear their side as well. I'm not, uh, this is not a political or a partisan or a, I'm not, this is not a trying to push a, a view of something. It's just the reality is that most of the people we're hearing who have this will be like Rose, which if nothing else should tamp down the fear a little bit of what might happen. I hope, I think. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Pretty much everything in the world of sports is shut down right now. World of sports has just taken a massive, seemingly a massive blow from what's going on with no crowds and people not supposed to be together and all the rest of that stuff. Uh, The NHL is shut down. The NBA, Major League Baseball, the PGA, NCAA, March Madness, University Sports here in Canada, minor hockey, senior hockey, the Allen Cup has been canceled. Uh, the OHL, the QMJHL, the Western League, the tennis tour, figure skating, on and on and on. Everything pretty much, except for WrestleMania, of course. WrestleMania still goes on. But everything else is shut down. Not much to see right now. But rather than talk about what's going on right now, let us look ahead. We're going to jump ahead for the next few minutes here. Because if, let's say, the experts are right, right and let's say the experts have nailed it, that in a best case scenario, everything is shut down for a month. And a month from now, maybe we can get back to action. That's, that's one thing. We'll talk about that. But the worst case scenario, well, maybe not even worse, but others are saying it could be six months. Well, how does all this affect the business side of sports and what is coming out the other side when we're finished here. Uh, Dr. Michael Narain is an assistant professor in sports management at Brock University. He joins us now. Dr. Narain, thanks for doing this today. Oh, thanks for having me. 
We are, I'm looking at this, and I was just rhyming off those leagues and everything else, and I, I only hit on probably a quarter of them. We are really in uncharted territory, aren't we? Oh, absolutely. This is, um, this is unprecedented. Uh, it's certainly something we've never seen in the history of sport business. Um, you know, in terms of an industry that's really come and matured over the past three to four decades, um, from a commercial standpoint, we, we have not seen a pause or a stoppage that has had the impact uh, so widespread and so global um, that that we are now currently experiencing. I mean, the, the closest thing would be 9-11, yep. uh, certainly here in a North American perspective. And from a global perspective, perhaps uh, World War II. Uh, that's how far back we have to go. And certainly, you know, some of the um, that's how far back we're going for even the impact on the stock markets themselves. But from a sport business perspective, you know, Magic Johnson is HIV case, uh, 9-11. That, that's the, the context in which we are now looking at the coronavirus as the single most impactful event in sport business history. And the thing that the two that you just mentioned there, nine eleven and World War Two. Nine eleven, I think the league that was out probably the longest then would have been football, and that's because they only play on Sunday. So I think they didn't play for two weeks. And World War Two, of course, I mean that's just a totally different time. Sports business was not even remotely comparable to what it is now. So we don't even have a model for where we are right now. No, absolutely not. And, and, and as I mentioned, it's a completely unprecedented territory. And what makes what exacerbates the issue is the as you mentioned uh, in your last response there, the sport business complex is very, very, for lack of a matter or lack of a better term, complex. It's, it's, it has matured over the past two to three decades, and it has come to a place where there are multiple stakeholders involved, lots of corporate partners and entities uh, that, that are associated. And, you know, when you have a work stoppage, um, in either of these sports, it tends to negatively impact the bottom line. And when you have a stoppage that impacts across the board, um, it can significantly impact media, fans, sponsors, uh, the athletes themselves, but even ancillary revenues from concessions, tourism. Um, these are the types of things that really come into play, and it really shines a light on how intricate and important the sport business is to our society. For, for many people, sport is just that escape. It's the, oh, you know, it's in the back of the newspaper, or it's in the back of the, it's at the bottom of the website. Um, but for when you think about the commercial implications, you start to think, well, the sport industry is actually a, a multi, not only a multi-billion dollar industry, but certainly hits closer to home than many people may think. Let's break this down into a couple things, and we'll go through some of those things you just said. But mm-hmm. uh, right off the bat, I, 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 the leagues that are out right now, I have to believe that the NBA and probably Major League Baseball are in reasonably okay shape, even if there's a delay, because both of them have massive TV deals. So people who buy tickets to go sit in the in the crowd in the stadium in the arena, that's nice, but they could probably get by even without that if they had been playing. Even though they're not playing, there's still big enough TV deals that they can probably be okay. What about the NHL? Because it is a league that is still heavily reliant on seats or bums in the seats. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so now that being said, all leagues would love to have bums in the seats. That is the number one problem that is espoused by the sport business that we need to get more bums in the seats, bums in the seats. But definitely the comment that you make is, is, is very true. Um, the number one driver of revenue for most professional sport leagues is media. And obviously, this, as you mentioned, the, uh, the media deals, you know, Turner and CBS, uh, in, uh, excuse me, uh, Turner and uh, ESPN, excuse me, in the United States for NBA, 
and then obviously Fox uh, with Major League Baseball. But gate revenue, as you mentioned, is incredibly important for, for the NHL, um, particularly because salaries are paid in U.S. dollars. And so when you're thinking about Canadian teams like Winnipeg and Calgary and Edmonton, um, even the Ottawa Senators, where, you know, their businesses, their business model may not be as um, stimulated as they would like. They would certainly love more revenue. They're already up against it, considering that the loony is already lower than the U.S. greenback. And so that's why gate revenue is so important. And all those ancillary revenues that are generated as a result of attending, like buying concessions, you know, when we look at the price of the average beer in the NHL around about $8 U.S., um, that makes a huge difference when you've got 17,000, 18,000 people who are potentially buying beers or buying hats or buying large, high-revenue, high-margin products and services. And so, yeah, absolutely, the NHL really relies. I mean, certainly the, the billion-dollar deal with Sportsnet is, uh, is lovely to have, but the, the NHL does not have a large, uh, large-scale U.S. television contract relative to MLB, NFL, and and, uh, uh, Major League Baseball, and so, and the NBA, excuse me. So, gay revenue, as you mentioned, super important for the NHL, and so this stoppage here, this pause, as as Gary Bettman and the league likes to refer to it as, is going to significantly impact particularly the Canadian teams, as well as those smaller market teams like the Florida Panthers, like the Arizona Coyotes, where gate revenue is super uh, important, as well as the ancillary revenues that you get from bums in the season. When you say could affect, uh, could you see any teams, because we know there have been some NHL teams that have been in trouble in recent years, could you see any teams being in real trouble if this thing drags on? Uh, I mean, it depends on your definition of real trouble. I mean, for, for a fair bit now, we've known that the Ottawa Senators' balance sheet has not been particularly great. Um, Eugene Melnick has been known to pr- primarily draw his revenue from the Ottawa Senators, um, as in addition to his other uh, you know dealings elsewhere, but the Senators are a very important um, item for Eugene and his uh, his businesses. Um, the Senators have been in financial trouble for some time now because they're having the same problem that you've just mentioned, Scott, of getting bums in the seats. Getting seventeen thousand people out to Canada uh, in Ottawa is is a is a struggle. Whereas if the team were downtown, and that's a story for another day, certainly. But the Ottawa Senators are probably at the the biggest um, issue, I'd say, from a Canadian standpoint. As, along with Winnipeg, those two teams would probably be the most at risk. Although Winnipeg's success has certainly helped them over uh, their their on ice success has certainly helped them over the past two years or so. Um, but Ottawa and Winnipeg, from a financial standpoint, certainly have a lot to lose here. Um, as well, as I, as I mentioned, the teams in the United States, we're looking at the Florida Panthers, we're looking at the Arizona Coyotes, even looking at the Anaheim Ducks and the San Jose Sharks, where you know this prolonged stoppage may impact the ability to draw in those ancillary revenues from, from fans who come through those gates. All right, you talk about the uh, the spin-off things, and you mentioned those before, and you also pointed out that much of the revenue, or a lot of it, comes from TV deals. So now we've got the second part of this, which is these sports networks, whether it's in Canada or the States, but particularly in Canada, let's concentrate on the ones up here, TSN, Sportsnet. They're really important to the sports world because they put the money into the leagues, but they now are in this position where they've got each of them has five or six channels and radio stations and websites uh, to fill with sports, and there's no sports. Are they in a strong position 
to face a long sports blackout? Yeah, that's a great question. And again, it, it's it's difficult to to really pinpoint that answer only because it's so unprecedented. However, uh, based upon my expert knowledge of the sport industry, here's here's what I'll, I'll hazard to say over the air that. The producers and, and the, the executives at these broadcast networks, they have a short-term plan, certainly. It's easy to, uh, you know, throw up reruns. And, you know, there, there's been some talk over social media that, uh, you know, re-airing the Toronto Raptors NBA championship run from last year is certainly going to draw a decent audience, you know, sort of generate some of that nostalgia. You mean not just poker? <laughs> well, you know, the poker and the darts and, and the uh, uh, the bowlings of the world will probably make their way to the airwaves. Um, but and, and I'll get to some of the uh, different types of content that they might put up. But from a nostalgia point of view, and we've seen this before where Sportsnet has aired the 92-93 World Series runs by the Jays before in terms of trying to generate more fandom for the Blue Jays, trying to reinstill that nostalgic sense of belief and belonging to the team. And fans do jump back on that bandwagon and say, oh, yeah, you know, I want to see Joe hit that home run in game six. Now, that being said, that can only last for so long. There's only so much reruns that you can get through before there starts to be attrition and there starts to be a, a, a lack of um, a followership and viewership. And so this is where the additional pieces of the pie come into play. And so there are other sports properties that Sportsnet and Roger Sportsnet and TSN have been purchasing the rights to here in Canada for some time now that many of the, the mainstream audience may not be necessarily aware. So uh, in one example, TSN has the broadcast rights to the Australian Football League. Now, they generally show those games in September, um, closer to the end of the season in Australia, and they tend to be, you know, at midnight or, to, you know, reruns at, you know, 2 o'clock in the afternoon on a Saturday when people are out shopping, um, you know, trying to buy toilet paper. But... Uh, Oh, that's that's twenty four hours a day now. <laughs> that could be so. that could be a sport we show on t- on sports TV is toilet paper buying and fighting. That would be worth watching. Oh, it would be highly watched. It's, it's my ten a.m. at Costco. <laughs> watching two people go at it. But the um, you know the Australian Football League that's a great example of of a global sport that's getting a little bit more traction here in Canada, and TSN has the rights to that. Or cricket. We know that cricket is one of the fastest growing sports in the world. Uh, India has not had the massive coronavirus activity that some of the other countries have. Uh, India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka. And so that subcontinental area is very rife for sports broadcasting and to share some of those uh, content pieces. And then there's the big one that is probably the most controversial, uh, and that is esports. And it seems far-fetched to the older crowd, but there is a younger millennial and zennial uh, cohort coming through the system that like to watch other people play video games. And it's not completely far-fetched, Scott, if you think about it. You know, back in the day, people used to go to the arcades and watch other people play, you know, Pong or Space Invaders and all those types of things. We're just now taking it to a digital virtual level. And so watching people play a Madden NFL or a FIFA uh, EA Sports FIFA, or even a League of Legends, Fortnite, et cetera, et cetera. And, and many of the, the audience are probably, you know, starting to see some names that are very popular with their kids and, and, and the younger generations there. You're going to see a lot more of this younger generation tuning into those sports and those broadcasts on Twitch, on TSN, on, on, uh, on Sportsnet, because that is the only thing that might be available. As someone who just wants to show... Uh, stream their game at home and say, hey, look, I'm, I'm an expert playing uh, Madden NFL uh, 
2020 here. See, I don't know if I'm going to tune in to watch Madden NFL, but if you could have a Donkey Kong League from the 80s and Space Invaders and Frogger, I may be tuning in to watch that. that that's more up my alley. Well, and you know what? It's there. If you, if you head over to <laughs> Come Twitch, on. Twitch, there is not a Donkey Kong League. Well, there's Mario Kart, and certainly there's guys playing Donkey Kong and girls <laughs> playing Donkey Kong. Twitch is a multi-million dollar opportunity. I'll have that to was, check that. Oh, that, it was seized by Amazon. Amazon now uh, purchased Twitch. Twitch is the social media platform where gamers stream themselves playing the game and users tune in to watch, but also comment on the sidebar. It, it's a really interesting experience. Yeah. It's certainly something that is completely different than our traditional mainstream sports, but we're going to see a lot more of that because that's where the sponsorship dollars are going, and that's because that's where the younger generation eyeballs are. We will, uh, we will certainly be, you and I will be talking about that another day for sure, but we only have a few minutes left here, and I want to get to the third part. So we've got the, the sports itself, we've got the, the broadcast arm, which is trying to sort this out, and then as you mentioned, we've got all this peripheral stuff, and we've got the bars and the restaurants and the Ubers and the hotels and the everything, the people who work in the arenas, everything else that's going on. And it's amazing. And I didn't even contemplate this until I started looking at some of the numbers, the number of people who are employed and make their living in this way that are suddenly sitting in the dark. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, in a, a lifetime ago, I used to be one of those people who, who took tickets and ushered people and, and did security at the Rogers Centre down in Toronto. Um, and, and a lot of those people, you'd be surprised to know, a lot of those people are uh, retirees who are using that now as their sole source of income. Uh, so if you think about, you know, going to see a Leafs game or going to see a Sens game or whoever your favorite team is, and, you know, oh, there's, there's Johnny or there's Jane and she's been around here. She's been working that job for 25 years. It tends to be the case where that person is that that employment opportunity is their sole source of revenue. Um, and, and so it is a, a very uh, important thing to talk about. And we're starting to see a lot of teams, sport and entertainment properties come out and say, we will support these staff members, despite the fact that we're not actually playing because we know that this is their livelihood. And a and, lot of athletes today, all of a sudden, Jan, uh, it started with Kevin Love with Cleveland, the Cavaliers, who said, I'm going to give a hundred grand to pay for money. And then Giannis Attentacupo came out today and, uh, uh, Bobrovsky down in, Flor- in uh, Florida. So suddenly a bunch of athletes are all paying money for these people, which is great, which is fantastic. Absolutely. Well, I would hope Bobrovsky would open his wallet with no, <laughs> no state income tax in Florida. But it's also no surprise there, Scott, that Giannis and Kevin Love, two guys who are in the rust belt of the United States. And if you think about that, that it, it creates, it exacerbates the importance of the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Milwaukee Bucks and other teams in the Rust Belt region of the United States, you know, uh, typical or uh, historical cities that have been absolutely decimated by uh, this, the new revolutions, uh, both digital and information, um, those cities, the people in those cities need those teams for those ancillary revenues that we talked about, whether it's the hotel industry, Ubers, the gig economy, that kind of stuff. Also of interest, though, and going back to the original point about financial health, I'm not sure if this has changed uh, over the past few hours, but I'm under the impression that True North Sports and Entertainment, uh, the team, uh, the organization that operates the Winnipeg Jets, they have not come out saying that they were going to support no, their staff. No, so, with again, the richest man in Canada owning that team. Absolutely, and so that underscores the point of owning a professional sports franchise is still tricky, fickle business, and particularly in the NHL, when we're talking about U.S. dollars, I mean, all pro sports in North America run on U.S. dollars, but hockey is the one that impacts us the most here in Canada, strictly because 
We have more teams. It's more than just the Toronto region. We've got teams elsewhere in the country, and we pay our players and, and other, uh, well, mostly the players, in U.S. dollars, and all of our revenues happen in Canadian dollars. So we're already at a, one, a, a 70 cent to the dollar disadvantage. It's, uh, it's a story that we, uh, we're going to be looking at for a long time because this is, uh, they're saying now, at least a month before anything starts to get back to normal, and that's, uh, that is going to have an effect because there are a lot of tentacles that come off of this sports industry. Dr. Michael Narain from Brock University Sports Management Program, thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate it. No problem, Scott. Anytime. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.